Welcome back to the Para Podcast. I'm your host, Sandra, and today we are joined by another special guest. On this episode, we're going to be joined by Courtney, and you might already know her on YouTube or Instagram from Flock Talk. She shares a lot of really valuable and great educational videos about parrots. She has an awesome bird room. She's got a little flock. And we're going to talk all about parrots today and discuss some of the most common things that parrot owners experience, including biting and screaming, resource guarding, and all these different things. So I'm really excited to jump into our call with Courtney. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Courtney. Let's start off with introducing yourself and telling us about your flock and how many birds you have, their names, their species. And anything else you want to add on top? <laughs> Sounds good. So my name is Courtney. I run the Flock Talk social media accounts on YouTube, Tumblr, and Instagram. Those are the only thing we have. Uh, it's been running since 2014. Um, currently, I only have two Long birds. Long time. We have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a little on and off for a bit, but we've been going for quite a while. And uh, so currently I just have Newt, the maroon-bellied conure, and uh, Toto, who is upstairs, who is a Quaker parrot. And they're both rescues and both about five years old, give or take. Um, I personally, I have been working with parrots for a little over 10 years now, I believe. And oh. yeah, and I started just in high school working at like a store where my job was to hand raise the birds and give them like the basic training to be able to move into adulthood and be socialized good little birdies and then from there I thought I wanted to be a vet, uh, vet tech so I was starting to think about going to school for that and started volunteering at vet clinics that specialized in parrots and so I got to learn a lot about the like parrot restraint and different medications and how they administer them got to help restrain animals for x-rays and I actually got to stand in and watch surgeries which was really cool that was super awesome exactly right <laughs> um, I'd be like I don't know I'd be like scared and like it's so I was terrified but I would be so terrified because they're so little and delicate yeah, yeah and like I'm just a volunteer and they were like oh just watch the heart rate monitor and obviously there was an actual technician there doing it but the entire time I'm like staring at it like <laughs> oh my god oh no that would um, be me yeah. And then unfortunately, from that experience, I realized that I was not going to be uh, cut out. Um, my I am a disabled individual and my medical condition doesn't allow me to stand for long periods of time. And so I learned very quickly that if I do that, I will faint and pass out. So, so I had to say that isn't going to be a career path for me. And instead, I ended up going to school for applied behavioral analysis, which is basically the field of study of behavior, how it works, why it works, and the kind of protocols and strategies you can use to modify and change behaviors. And then I went on to work as a dog trainer because in order to specialize in parrots, I was going to have to go to Ontario. And You are impressing me. Yeah. And it was just, it was not going to work. So that's, that's where we're at now. <laughs> wow. So you were going to go to Ontario, but you didn't end up going? I It wasn't going to be a possibility for me at that point in my mm -hmm. life. So I just kind of went with the bare bones, basic kind of dog side of things. And a lot of those methods and strategies, I would honestly say virtually all of them, uh, apply to parrots very directly. Obviously, there's species specific behaviors and things to take into account. But mm -hmm. the basic principles of behavioral modification and training and how those things function is very universal across the, virtually every species there is. So wow. 
That is awesome. So you have a really great background and I love that you were also talking about your experience because look what I have over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Parrot First Aid Quick Start yeah. Guide. So to anybody who's listening, if you go to Flock Talk, you can download a free Parrot First Aid Guide from them. And I love this because I'm always worried about like, what if something happens? Like, yes, we have an emergency avian vet and thankfully it's only six minutes away. So, and they're open 24 hours so we can rush over there, but I'm always like so anxious and like with birds, I'm so specific. Cause like with the dogs, Lambo always lets me know as soon as he has a tummy ache or his paw hurts or anything, I know the day of, but with parrots, it's a little bit different and they're so small. Well, with Conyers, they're small and delicate. So I'm always like, what if something happens or you see all these videos online and yeah. blood feathers and, you know, accidents and broken wings and things. So I am always like, I wouldn't know what to do. And then I printed this and I'm like, <laughs> now I have some kind of guideline. And I also love that you have as like the first step, keep calm. Cause a lot of times <laughs> I am not calm when something yeah. happens. So yeah. I'm like, that is a good reminder, calm down and go step by step. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this and what inspired you to create this awesome parrot first aid guide? So I was actually restocking my current parrot first aid kit and I got like a human first aid box because I just needed a box for it and it has its stuff in it. And inside that box, there was a human version of a booklet of what to do in various emergencies like heart attacks and CPR. And I was like, why doesn't this exist? Why doesn't this exist already? And so yeah. I looked at it, I was trying to see if maybe like the uh, Association of Avian Veterinarians might have a printout or something or if a clinic already had one because I'm not a vet, right? I don't want to be, um, if I can get one written by a vet, I'd rather have that. Mm -hmm. But it, it didn't actually exist. Um, so I was like, okay, fine. I'm at least just gonna make a little booklet for myself. So if there's an emergency, I know what to do. And you're not having to like frantically Google or sit through advertisements before trying to figure out what to do while your bird is like choking. Like that's the yeah. time you do not have. And so I started finding resources that were written by veterinarians and putting that information into the pamphlet and making it for myself. And I was posting about this on the Tumblr account. And then a bunch of people on there were like, can I have it? It's like, sure, why not? So at, at the moment, the book's only been written by me, but I have actually had some certified avian veterinarians say that they're willing to look over it and kind of revise it for me. So if that ends up working out, I will end up posting like another updated version of it with credit to them uh, after they've revised it. But that's kind of like my hopeful end goal is yeah. that this can actually be approved by someone who has the knowledge to be able to be putting this information out there. And then it can be helpful for everybody instead of just trusting someone who is not qualified in that reign of things. Um, well, you do have a very impressive background and anyone who's listening, yes, Courtney is not a vet, but it is a really helpful guide. And I think it's great because there's nothing like that available. And when you posted yeah. that on Instagram, I was like, I need to share this with everybody <laughs> because what a great resource and it's free. You yeah. are awesome. Clawsome. <laughs> <laughs> the free aspect has always been what my flock talk platforms has always been when I first started it back in 2014 initially it was supposed to just be like here's my cute little parrotlets because I had two parrotlets at the time and uh, I just wanted to share them but then as time went on I realized that 
parrot care, at least back in 2014, was quite bad. And the information was very outdated, even at the time. And the only information you could find is on like very aversive and compulsion based training methods. And it was like, this, this has got to, this has got to go. So I kind of took it upon myself to be like, you know, if the punishment and the bad stuff is so easy to find, let's make the good stuff as easy and accessible for people as possible. At the end of the day, like everyone is trying to do what's best for their birds. And it's just when you look up the first three links on Google and all of them are giving you the same wrong info, it's very easy mm -hmm. to think that it's right. So our kind of mission here has always been to get the good information out there and keep it free and keep it accessible. So that way everyone's able to take care of the birds that they the, the way that they want to. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it because I totally agree with that. When we first got Mango, our son, Kanye, who's in Thailand, I was like, what, what do I do? <laughs> There's so much I need to know, like, cause we already had Lambo and I started looking up parrot information and I found that there was a lot of information where I was like questioning. I'm like, I'm not really sure if you should do that with a parrot. So yeah. then I started to filter through all the good info and the bad info, but unfortunately the outdated stuff is still there and people come across it. And so not everybody will always understand that this is outdated information. So I think that what you're doing is really great. And this is why I also wanted to have you on the podcast because I just love sharing more information out there with everybody. And I know that we're all trying our best with our birds and they're yeah. really quite complicated. There's so much to know about parrots. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they are wild species. <laughs> yeah. They're still very much exotic and trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong in a sea of misinformation is dang near impossible. So yeah. it's great that you and me and everyone else are here to try and help people do the best that they can. So I was watching a few of your videos and I've been obsessed with your bird room since I first saw it on Instagram. And I was looking at your bird room on YouTube and I was like, oh my gosh, this is literally my dream. It is so beautiful. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your bird room. Like what inspired you and how did you go through the process of like picking everything out to make it what it is now? So the bird room, as magnificent as it is, is actually kind of a sad story. And um, so I've been making bird rooms basically since 2014. Like as soon as I got birds and I realized that the minimum cage sizes they were in wasn't right, I was like, well, obviously I got to go overboard with this. And so yeah. I, I started making bird rooms from there and it started out where I wasn't allowed to put holes in the walls and stuff. I was still living in like my parents' house. So I had to be having sheets draped all over the place and and mm. try and make things work but I was very much not able to do so and there's a post I made years and years and years ago where I'm saying like I saw somebody have a bird room and it had perches in the walls and I can't do that now but I know someday I will make that happen and here we are you with gotta have a dream and exactly you dream I, it, you can I, do it <laughs> I made it happen um but the bird room was originally actually upstairs in like a spare bedroom and uh, Mia, my parrotlet, that was my first parrot. Uh, she, yeah, she was living in there with Newt. <laughs> and she was about 10 years old. And unfortunately, she had a really traumatic accident overnight and she broke her wing. And she 
ended up going to the hospital. I rushed her there and she unfortunately didn't recover and she did. She had passed away. Gosh, I'm and so sorry. Oh, it was terrible. And I'm going to keep moving on. Otherwise I will cry. Um, so we're going we're gonna to keep moving. Um, but Newt really struggled and their relationship was so cute because Newt's a very social bird and parrotlets tend not to be. And Mia was kind of indifferent to his existence. Uh, so he <laughs> spent a good two years, two or three years, just trying to earn her affections. And he really put the work in with respecting her body language and being so gentle with her and she would give him so much attitude oh um, and yeah he he put the work in and eventually they ended up bonding quite well and they'd preen each other and they loved sleeping throughout the day together I um, love the romantic birds they're so cute <laughs> it was very sweet when she she was 10 when she passed she was getting older new she she couldn't fly super well so she had a few birth defects and she had some issues and she couldn't fly super well and so she as she declined with her age she would start just like flying to the floor and walking to the bird room instead of flying to it and newt would fly to the floor with her and he would walk her to the room so he could be as well it was the cutest thing <laughs> and you're, um, someone's gonna tell me that birds not, are not smart they are so smart they're and romantic the sweetest <laughs> um but so when she passed away it hit him extremely hard and he got very depressed he had massive mood swings he wouldn't eat unless I was like sitting there with him he struggled really really hard and so we realized very quickly that we needed to act fast in order to to get him another companion he wasn't going to be able to recover and, and remain a single bird and with that, my wife decided, she was like, hey, we should turn the basement into a second bird room because if we're getting a new bird, what we're going to need a second space. Anyways, get yourself a wife who thinks you should make another bird room. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Um, and this was literally, she passed at like 2 a.m. And so basically the morning that she passed, uh, my wife had made that comment and I was like, she went to work that day and I went downstairs staring at the room that we were thinking of turning into a bird room and I texted her and I was like I need to punch a hole in the wall so I'm gonna start demolishing this room to make a bird room okay <laughs> she went okay sounds good I took a sledgehammer <laughs> love you bye I, yeah I just <laughs> I fun. fucking just bawling my eyes out and like screaming and just punching the walls in it oh was very gosh. cathartic it was very needed but there's a lot of emotion and distress <laughs> and grief uh that made the walls of that room so yeah we we tore it down and then the whole front of it is like the big mesh front and you've got these two beams and I painted them to look like birch trees and then put fake leaves across the top and then I have mm, the memorial pieces that. for Mia and ZB which was my other parrotlet and then canary which was my like 13 year old canary that passed away a few years ago and so it's kind of like the three of them get to kind of overlook and, and oversee the birds that will be residing in that room and, and look down upon them. So that's kind of oh, why that's that so room. so sweet. Yeah, that's why My it heart exists. is warm, <laughs> but also sad. Yeah, it's sad, but it, it it's good. And it was kind of a refreshing way to kind of honor her and be, you know, Mia was the first parrot I ever owned. And she was the reason why I really got into parrots as much as I did and mm. she was the reason flock talk started so she is you know always sticking there as a reminder for constantly improving care constantly educating and constantly creating a bigger and a bigger and a bigger bird room apparently <laughs> so <laughs> tell me a little bit about the differences between having a conure a parrotlet and a quaker parrot like what do you notice that are like the biggest differences between them and like their noise levels and things like that? 
in terms of noise level, the Quaker definitely takes the cake. He was he was rehomed because he was noisy. Um, and despite the fact that louder than is, the Conyers. Yes. Oh really? yes. I would say at least twice as loud as the Conyer. You wouldn't think it because he's not that much bigger. He's like 90 grams, whereas Newt mm. is 75. And yeah, he he just hits that like pitch and that tone where you can feel your eardrum just vibrate. I've had it where he's been sitting on my shoulder and he screeched and your ear just goes deaf for half a second. <laughs> you wouldn't think it would be that bad. Whereas like new, it'll be loud and you'll be like, oh, that was kind of uncomfortable, but it's not that big a deal. And then the parrot lets, I would 100% through and through say they're a very easy apartment bird because their loudest scream is is not it's not it's not very it's not loud. it's just cute yeah like they can try and get loud but it and like it can I guess it's loud to some people but I wouldn't really say it's any louder than you probably have your tv on most of the time so yeah they're pretty quiet demeanor wise it's honestly I think it's more individual bird than it is individual species at this point like parrotlets mm-hmm. tend to be a very independent bird they can be very sweet very social and very cuddly but a lot of them don't tend to go that way um like Mia didn't really love scritches she really loved just kind of sitting in the hair cave and sitting there and that was her preference for affection she didn't really like being touched as much but she's Mm. still very sweet and and affectionate bird whereas Newt is a very like playful and chaotic bird but he's also a male which can also influence their behavior and so he likes to play wrestle and roll around and he likes to nibble and he is whether you can say it's because of species or because of his history, because he was rehomed for aggression problems. Um, but he does have a higher tendency to go to kind of bite and nibble uh, to tell you off over some different body language cues. But over the years, he's gotten better with that. And then Toto, our Quaker, we've only had him since April. So a lot of the stuff that we see from him isn't necessarily a trait of his personality as much as it is a trait of kind of trauma and things that he's still working through and unlearning. So we can't really say for sure, but he is a lot more sensitive to body movements. And like, if he's not paying attention and then you ask for a step up, you're probably going to get nipped by him. Whereas if you kind of give him a pre-warning and say, hey, buddy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over. And then he kind of goes, oh, what? And he'll look and acknowledge you and be like, oh, and then he's kind of mentally prepped and ready for it. But mm-hmm. he had a lot of trauma when he first came to us with just like the two finger step up position, where if he just saw that, he would flip and just get really aggressive because he was probably forced to step up one too many times. So he kind of learned that biting was the only way to get that to go away. But now he's at a point where I can present that hand, he will step up, he will be calm. But you kind of have to make sure that he's ready for it and that he's paying attention. You don't want to kind of catch him by surprise. But otherwise, he's... He's a very chill kind of bird. Like he likes kind of just sitting. He'll chatter to himself. He does dance a little bit. He kind of sways back and forth and kind of rocks when he dances. Whereas <laughs> Newt's version of dancing is like the head bobbing and going, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I love bird dancing. <laughs> it's the best. Um, I saw a video that you had posted about Conyers because, and you were talking about how they can be nippy, like that is a form of their play. And since we're speaking about Conyers and Quakers and parrotlets, I find that a lot of people tend to give that same feedback that Conyers tend to be nippy. And I've noticed that even Mia sometimes, like if she wants scritches, she like nibbles my fingers ever so gently to like, let me know that this is what I want from you or I need from you. And sometimes when she wants to play, she wants to play bite as well. So I do think that 
Conyers do tend to be a little bit nippier, but I'm also not familiar with all different types of parrot species. But do you think that that's like a Conyers specific characteristic? I think it's a careful phrasing to walk along because there's a difference between using their beak to communicate calmly. Like you'll see Newt kind of there. I touched him. He didn't like it. He grabbed my finger. That's Mm -hmm. him just saying, oh, I didn't like that. Right. And he's going to tell me off. But if your bird is like latching on and drawing blood and actively hitting that point of having to bite you and tell you off all the time, that's not the way they're supposed to be. Like you shouldn't be invading their boundaries so much that they're having to bite you to get you to stop all the time. And I fear that that's where the Conyers are nippy kind of stereotype started because a lot of people don't know how to recognize parrot body language and I don't blame them it can be very subtle it can be very difficult to read Mm -hmm. and so you're more likely to end up getting bit and just think that it's a species specific trait especially when you're working with a bird like a conure that tends to like to have hands handling them and wrestling with them and being in their space it's a lot more likely that you're going to accidentally be invading their space and get bit whereas with a bird who already doesn't like you in their space your hands aren't going to be near them for that to happen quite as often. So I fear that's kind of where the nippiness thing came from. I will say that conures tend to be more mouthy and they do like to use their mouths to play. But in that context, like I'm playing with Nude on my shoulder, he's beaking me. He's not doing any damage. It doesn't hurt. He's not, he's just squishing my, my flesh. He's just playing with my fingers. He's not actually intending to harm me or do any harm. And I think that's where you kind of have to walk that line very, very carefully where they are more likely to use their beaks to communicate a lot of the time, but they shouldn't be using their beaks in a way where they're intending to harm you to get you to stop doing something. You can definitely teach them and train them that you will listen to their body language and that you will respect their boundaries when they want them. And they can be gentle to access those same benefits. I totally agree with that. And I also find that a very common problem that a lot of bird owners or new bird owners have, especially when they just get them and they've had them for a couple of weeks is my bird is biting. My bird is biting me all the time. And it's just the most common problem that I see in like comments and messages. And so I wanted to get you to chat a little bit about on like your top tips for biting. And I know that with biting, it's not just like they're biting because of this. There's so many different reasons why a bird is biting and it's really figuring out what that reason is and getting to that root cause so we can work through the biting. Yeah. So like you said, there's always going to be different reasons for why a bite occurs, but my biggest piece of advice for handling biting is to focus on the bite a little bit less as humans it's very easy for us to almost get offended or feel bad when they've bitten us like I can't believe you would do this to me I thought you loved me how could you hurt me like this it's very easy to take it personally but it's important to to recognize that when you've been bit first off it was probably your fault like you probably invaded their space and they were trying to just find a way to communicate that to you and maybe you don't familiar aren't familiar enough with their body language where you didn't notice that they were telling you to stop and it hit a point where they had to bite you and so it's important not to take it personally because your bird's not trying to say that they hate you and or that they don't trust you or, or whatever it is that you're feeling it's just that they're stuck and they don't know how to advocate for themselves and this is their last ditch effort is to just to bite you and get the situation to stop in the moment when you have been bit instead of wanting to focus on on being bit and and wanting to have the biting stop and screaming yeah um, (laughs) it's more important to kind of think about what happened 
prior to, to that bite occurring, right? And what you can do to prevent it going forwards. And there is a piece of advice that, that's going around and I have no idea who started it, but the the advice is very outdated. And it is to, if you get bit, just leave your hand there until the bird calms down and then you can take it away. And the issue with that is first of all, so dangerous, okay? So yeah. incredibly dangerous. <laughs> if you have already been bit, and it doesn't matter if it's a small bird or a big bird, they can do damage. They can rip hunks of your skin out. They can break your bones if they're the bigger guys. It doesn't yeah, matter like if you're trying to- take your finger off, I think. Exactly. Like it, <laughs> it can be very dangerous. Don't leave your hand there. And on the, the flip side of that is that your bird is already associated that you didn't listen to their body language and you invaded their space. And then if you leave your hand there, you're continuously telling them that I'm not going to listen to you. I don't care what you have to say. There is no way for you to advocate for yourself. I do not care. And whatever you try will never work. And what that's going to do is you might see the biting decrease, it might happen. But what happens is it suppresses that behavior, it doesn't resolve it. So it can either suddenly lash out later when they come under more extreme stress and become even, even worse, or you'll end up in a state that's called learned helplessness, which is exactly what it sounds like where a bird has been put under so much stress and they have tried a behavior time and time and time again, and it's never worked for them and they have nothing left that they literally give up there's nothing yeah. else for them to do and a lot of people will take that route because it looks like it solved the problem because the bird is now neutral but the bird is actually in a state of chronic stress and birds are very sensitive when it comes to stress not only from the ethical implications of deliberately stressing your bird out to get a behavior change mm -hmm. that that has but the amount of stress it has will suppress their immune system can make them sick and we don't want any of that right so and instead on top of that, they like to hide when they're sick for as long as possible. Exactly. So you might, you might accidentally end up killing your bird just because you've suppressed that state for so long. So instead, if you're getting bit, how you can handle it can go kind of two ways, depending on the species that you're working with, because some birds will strike and then release. And they're just trying to tell you to go away. If that's the case, just calmly remove your hand, put it behind your back, take a second, catch your breath. You don't want to scream and make a big deal out of it. You don't want to flail your arms around, say no bad bird and get in their face because two things can happen. For one, you can make them more angry and you're reaffirming to them that they were scared and threatened and you are still being scary and threatening. Or second, you can end up creating what happened to this guy and they can be entertained. <laughs> okay. So you they either validate be... <laughs> their fears or you're entertaining them. Exactly. And Newt ended up learning from his previous home that if you can make the person scared and threatened, they will scream and they will flail their arms and it's very funny and hilarious. So they're <laughs> going to keep doing it more. And that is such a hard habit to break. So I would recommend avoiding it entirely. <laughs> um, I would recommend <laughs> avoiding it. <laughs> it was not a fun route. It, it, you, in order to resolve that, you need like very specific knowledge on, on their body language and behavior and how to respond to it very correctly. Otherwise you will be doomed. It's, it's how how did time. you end up with Newt? Like how did he end up in your home because I think that he's he's meant for you because you were able to work through that and understand his body language so well Newt was like a Craigslist rescue situation and oh they my had gosh two birds. Craigslist makes me crazy yeah it's I can't bad. even believe it, that exists anymore it was even funnier because they were telling us how aggressive he is and how nasty he is and you could watch him interact with this person and see how aggressive they were being Save your shirt there <laughs> <laughs> the handy dandy camera in the corner letting me see it coming um but yeah they were explaining all this and they said he he particularly hates women 
and like they really emphasize that bit I'm like okay yeah yeah sure (laughs) it it was like within a week we had kind of had him mostly mellowed out and simmered once he kind of learned that hey your body language does advocate for you here you're good you're fine and then the the uh nippiness with playing is something that he's good with with me because I know how to control myself but with my wife she struggles to control her reactions sometimes so every now and then those old habits will kind of come from the back of his brain but yeah, yeah so so that's where he came from but um mm-hmm. back back to the biting uh the, yeah. the second way you can typically handle getting bit is there are some species n- namely amazons are really bad for this where if they bite you they will latch on and not let go And in those situations, if they're coming at you, what you can do, if you haven't been bit yet, is you can form your hand into a fist and it flattens out all the skin back there so they don't have much to grab onto and you can use it like a shield until you're able to move your hand away. If they have latched on, if you pull away from them, they're going to dig in deeper and that's going to hurt a lot. (laughs) It's going to hurt a lot. Oh my (laughs) gosh. So Those are some strong beats. (laughs) What if they come Um, for like your neck or your bicep? duck and cover and just pray (laughs) quite honestly um but then at which point if they have latched on instead you move in towards them you're not trying to punch them off the perch but you're just trying to move like their chin down and usually it can throw them off balance a little bit and cause them to release their jaw so that way you can move away keeping in mind that you don't want to be yanking your hand away super super fast because that can cause them to want to chase and pursue it you just want to lift it like 45 degree angle up and away calmly can't reach me oh my god i'm safe and then evaluate your, your injuries. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, it's nasty, nasty, nasty. You don't want to have to deal with that. Have you ever had experiences, I guess not experiences, but interactions with big birds, like where you were training and working with yeah. them and what types of big parrots have you worked with? So I've worked with a little bit of everything. I've worked with a few different macaws, a little bit with Amazons, not an extensive amount. Cockatoos were quite common. African greys were also very, very common. Uh, Lots of conures, lots of parrotlets, lots of budgies, lots of cockatiels. Uh, That was kind of the bulk of it. You'd you'd get like the occasional random Quaker or the occasional other little guy, but those were kind of the bulk of the birds that I usually ended up working with. Yeah, I'm so used to just smaller birds, conures and like budgies and love birds. So I'm really comfortable with smaller birds, but I've never worked. I mean, I've interacted with bigger birds like macaws and African greys and stuff. And I find them so like, I mean, little birds and big birds, all birds are just majestic and wonderful, but the big (laughs) birds, they have this like awe to them. Cause I'm like, you're so big and I'm so like interested in you, but I'm scared of that strong beak. (laughs) Oh yes. Oh yes. (laughs) Got good survival instincts. Yeah. Um, I actually watched your video today on that. There's no bad behaviors and there's Mm -hmm. something that you said in that video and I really loved it. So I'm going to quote you. There is no such thing as an aggressive bird, only birds that are exhibiting aggressive behaviors. And there is no such thing as a problem behavior or bad behaviors. They are just behaviors that we don't personally want in our households. And that really stuck with me because I love that because that's one of the biggest things for pet owners when they get birds that's a learning curve you need to learn how to read your bird and understand their body language and understand hormones and their needs and their care requirements and what they're communicating and different species also communicate in different ways as well so 
I just wanted to touch a little bit about that. And maybe you can share with us more about how there are no bad behaviors. And we just really need to get to know our birds. Um, because in the video, you were talking about how we need to address the root cause. And depending on what it is, whether it's biting or it's screaming, there is a root cause. They're not behaving this way to annoy us or drive us crazy or, you know, get back at us for something. They're doing it to communicate something. And it's up to us to really understand what it is that their goal is or their need is. Yeah. So that that saying of there is no such thing as an aggressive bird there are only birds or animals that exhibit aggressive behavior that was something that was said to me and i can't remember who said it to me um but they were very much like a training mentor and it really stuck with me because it's true for all species and for people as well mm -hmm. in that your behavior in the moment does not define who you are or what you are in its entirety just because a bird is experiencing a lot of frustration or they're really distressed and they're feeling the need to be aggressive doesn't mean that that's all that that bird is and when you view it that way and you say this bird is aggressive you're putting a label on them that's gonna tell you that there's nothing you can do to change it and you're setting yourself up to fail because they're saying that's all this bird will ever be they are aggressive that is what they are that is what they innately deep down that's what their personality is and can never change whereas yeah. when you change your mindset about it and you say this bird is its own individual creature and it is presently exhibiting aggressive behavior to me that allows you to say hey there is a behavior that is being exhibited here and there is something that needs to change so they don't feel the need to exhibit that behavior and that allows you to be able to not only have a bit more sympathy and a bit more compassion for the animal that you're working with but it allows you to view them as something that can be changed, something that you can alter, a behavior that you can modify, and you can work on it from there. So when we're, when we're saying that there's no such thing as a, a bad behavior, uh, the reason why that phrasing exists is because every behavior serves a purpose to the creature or the animal that's exhibiting it. And I mean, just because humans it's too. Exactly, right? Like if you're slapping someone, it's probably because they've done something and you're doing it for a purpose to get that person to go away. Maybe they were trying to take your food. It served you a purpose, regardless of whether or not it was a quote unquote bad behavior or an undesirable behavior. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they're doing that is because they don't know an alternative way to get the same result or because it's the only thing that's ever worked for them. So when we're talking about biting and aggression or things like that, we're usually working with an animal who's potentially had its body language ignored for so long that it knows that its body language doesn't work to get what it wants anymore. And that biting is the only thing that has. And that is the behavior that serves a function to that animal. They bite you, they get you to go away. And that's information that you can use to learn and modify that behavior. Instead of going, oh, they're being aggressive and it needs to stop, you can go, okay, I would like it to stop personally, but for that bird, that behavior of biting me is to get me to go away. It's serving them a function. It's serving them a purpose. And that can give you the information that you need to be able to say, okay, they're telling me to go away. That's the desire that they want. So instead of pushing them to the point of biting to be able to do that, what I can do is I can approach them, watch their body language, observe them, and then I can walk away. And they can begin to learn that there's an alternative to biting me to get the same result. And so you're creating a new situation where a new behavior is serving the same purpose as the old behavior. And that old behavior isn't really needed. And what happens a lot of the time that people tend to believe that their bird bites for no reason, or they bite just blankly out of the blue, or that that's just how birds are. And the reality is that a parrot really doesn't want to have to bite you. 
biting is not very sustainable of a behavior. If they just walked around biting absolutely everything that marginally bothered them, they would get <laughs> then eaten they'd by be a real dinosaurs, <laughs> right? Like they would get consumed by a predator pretty quickly. It's not going to be a sustainable business model for, <laughs> for them. <laughs> Um, so when we're working That's with me in the kitchen, homes, walking around, biting everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we view it that way, we can see that they're not wanting to bite you for genuinely no reason. Cause what would be the benefit to that? Right. It, it, it's expends a lot of energy from them and it puts them at risk of getting bit back. They're biting you because they've hit their last final resort. And it's the last thing they think is going to work. And when you put that into perspective, all of a sudden the birds that are biting for absolutely no reason it becomes clearer that there has to be one because they wouldn't be biting you for no reason. And sometimes that reason's hard to find. Sometimes it's not as clear cut as, oh, they're just uncomfortable with something or they don't like the color of my hat. This guy here hates purple. He will scream and fly away if, if I wear purple. I can't wear purple around him. That's sometimes so it's, funny. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's silly, weird. Other times it's complicated. Sometimes it's they're biting because they've learned that biting you makes you make loud noises and it's funny. Sometimes yeah. it's they're overstimulated with their play, right? Like it's never a clear cut cause, but there is always mm -hmm. a reason behind it and a purpose for it. I totally agree with that. And with biting, it's so difficult sometimes to really narrow it down, but that's why it's important to really get to know your bird. And like you were saying, assess what happened before the bite. And I've also suggested to people before to even keep a journal, like your bird bit you, what happened before that, what happened after so that you can kind of keep track and then kind of go back and see, is there something that is repeating here? Is it always this happening before the bite to try and help somebody figure out what the biting cause is? Yeah. Journals can be super, super good for that. Another one I highly recommend is like recording anytime you're interacting with them. Yeah. It doesn't have to be pretty. It's not going on Instagram. Just set yeah. up a, your, your phone and just record when you're going to do a training session or when you think there's a likely chance that you're probably going to get bit. Because what happens with that is it might also give you more information that you didn't recognize in the moment. Because if you're just mm -hmm. doing a journal, which can be super helpful in noticing patterns, there can be things that you didn't notice in the moment because things go by mm -hmm. so fast. Whereas if you have that recording to watch back, you can slow it down and you might be able to notice their body language cues that you missed. You might pick up on new things you didn't know about before, or you might you even might notice a hawk posture... flying in the window in the right. background. It could Any have been number anything. Any number of things can change. Even just like the tone of your voice could have changed and you didn't recognize it in the moment. And that's what triggered the bird. And that can just help you get a better picture of what exactly happened. And then you can yeah. write that down and you can say, this is what happened. This is what I believe to be the trigger. This was body language I noticed. And you can take that information forwards to properly work on resolving the problem and the emotions behind why that bite occurred. Another common issue that a lot of people have is also screaming. And, you know, a lot of people get frustrated and annoyed because it's loud and it's noisy or their neighbors are complaining. But again, just like with biting, it comes down to they are communicating some things. Maybe they're excited. Maybe they're contact calling. Maybe they're bored. There is just so many different reasons why they could be screaming. Do you think that journaling or videoing or even like having a pet cam that records can help somebody narrow down the reason for screaming as well? Oh, absolutely. With any regard of training, having more 
data is always valuable. You can never have enough of it when you're training. So if you're writing down a journal and recording and you have a camera checking what's going on, you're not only setting yourself up to have so many more data points that you can view and have a better perspective, but if you're working on things like attention screaming that are happening when you're outside of the room, then that pet cam that's set up in there can show you what's happening to them prior to that screaming starting. And you could see if maybe an electronic that you have in that room makes a weird noise that triggers them, or you can see if maybe they're experiencing genuine stress and social anxiety or uh, separation anxiety that's triggering it. And that will give you a better view because for some situations, the behavior doesn't occur while you're there, right? Like attention screen yeah. doesn't happen while you're there. Yeah. And so having that set up when you're gone can be super, super valuable in gathering that information. Yeah. What are your top three tips for birds that are screaming or someone's like, my bird is really noisy or their attention screaming all of the time. What can I do? Courtney, help me. <laughs> for most broad screaming, like if they're screaming because they're having fun or they're screaming because it's 12 o'clock, there isn't a ton you can do because that's kind of just what a parrot is. Parrots scream because mm -hmm. they're having fun. Parrots have joy. So a part of that you do just kind of have to accept that you bought a bird. It's them Birds expressing scream, emotions. Right. And you just can't like expect us, we them. laugh, we sing. Yeah, they're going to make noise. But that doesn't mean that there aren't ways to work with it. And like if you have a bird that screams at sunrise, you can modify the environment to be able to help that. And you can put up curtains and stuff to control the daylight hours better. You can put them to bed a little bit later and things like that. You can also formally train like a scream hour um, as well as putting the behavior on cue and then basically never asking for it is another alternative. If you put screaming on cue and you have really good stimulus control over it where they will only scream when it's on cue, then they won't scream when it's not cued. And so that is an alternative that you can use, but you still have to give Great. them the outlets to be able to use it. You can't just expect them not to scream ever because they will eventually do it on yeah. their own again. Um, when it comes to attention screaming, things get significantly more complicated because for most birds that are screaming for attention, it's very much a, a genetic thing where they feel safety in numbers. They feel safety with their flock and it's very abnormal for them to be left alone, potentially in a quiet, dark room while their flock leaves. And that to them signals their brain to say, I'm terrified. I'm exposed to predators. I'm about to get seriously hurt. And that is a genuine state of fear. That's not something that's like, oh, I just don't want to be alone. That's potentially true separation anxiety. We don't have formal studies on whether or not parrots can truly experience the exact forms of separation anxiety, but from their mannerisms and their behaviors and the stress and the way it impacts their body, it is very likely that that is what's going on. And so the way you have to handle those is very delicate and it's hard because it's not a quick fix. And a lot of people that are faced with attention screaming are also faced getting kicked out of their houses for noise complaints. And so you want that quick fix. So not only is this super distressing for the bird who's experiencing that state of fear and panic, but also for the owner who's terrified that they're about to get kicked out of their house and they need to fix this and they need to fix it fast. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very tricky one to work with from both sides of it. And how you address it can kind of go a few ways and there's a few different ways to, to kind of approach it. And the first method that people recommend is to just let them scream it out. And this isn't without its faults. So the typical strategy they recommend is just to let the bird scream and then come in when they're quiet. This can get you some results, but we have to remember that while our bird is screaming that entire time, A, that's still getting you noise complaints, and B, 
the bird is distressed, right? They're absolutely panicked. They're in a pure state of fear where they are screaming because they can't find their flock and they think a predator is about to come eat them. And that stress is again, gonna be really bad for them, suppress their immune systems, expose them to illness, all of that. So it's not the ideal method. The other thing that can happen with that is when you are extinguishing a behavior, which is getting a behavior to, to end to stop, um, and you stop the reinforcement for it, the behavior will start to dip down because it's not working anymore. But then it actually hits a point called an extinction burst where the behavior will have not been reinforced for long enough that the animal is doing a latch, last ditch effort to make it work because it's the only thing that's worked for them in the past. And so they will suddenly get worse and it will skyrocket to the sky as a last desperate attempt to make this work, right? And then you're getting and kicked out for sure. <laughs> Exactly. The volume gets louder, the intensity gets more, they go on for longer durations. And this is the point where people will give up because it got worse. And, and then they put their bird on Craigslist. <laughs> and that, that can happen. But if you do give up and go back into your bird at the moment when that extinction burst happens, you have just created what is virtually an impenetrable behavior. You have just taught them that right when you think you're about to give up, I'll come back in. And so they'll probably not want to give up in the future. And it makes it very difficult. And so the amount of stress that's going through training that for both the person and the bird is beyond mm -hmm. insane. And then getting through that extinction burst is even harder. And then when you hit past that extinction burst, you again have some learned helplessness right? You haven't actually given them an alternative to ask for help. You have taught them to give up and you have still that chronic state of stress. So instead, the methods that I tend to recommend is to either teach an incompatible behavior. And this is something you can do if you are someone who is able to stay home and release them out of the cage all the time. If you're someone that goes to school, this isn't going to work for you or goes to work quite as well. But the way that this one works is that you teach them an incompatible behavior with screaming. So this is usually like ringing a bell or making a different vocalization, standing on a certain perch, um, just something that they can do that isn't the screaming that you're still going to give them the same result for. So you'll teach them to ring the bell, then you'll open the cage door, let them out. And then you practice until you're able to be just out of sight. So you can cue cute. them to ring the bell. And then they learn that it gets the same result and they don't have to scream anymore. That works really well for people that like work from home yeah. or maybe you're retired or whatnot. Then you can still give them what they want, but you're not getting that screaming. In the cases where you have to go to work and you have to leave, things get very difficult and very lengthy because you need to actually resolve the fear and distress and the anxiety that they're experiencing when you're gone. And what's happening probably right now is you're going to put that bird in that cage. You're having to kind of trick them to get them into it. Maybe you're getting bit while you're trying to put them into it because they already know that they're about to go into that cage. They're about to be left alone. They're about to be terrified. And that's where all of that distress prior to even ending up in the cage is coming from. I feel right? distressed <laughs> just thinking about how they're feeling. Yeah, it's terrible. And so you kind of have to have a whole separate protocol for teaching them how to be confident when they are alone. And this means that during this training, you're still doing your same routine when you actually need to leave. But the training protocol is happening with a totally different cue under a totally different circumstance and when you aren't actively needing to leave in the moment. So that way you can work on that comfort and that duration until they are able to have it applied to your typical leaving routine. And so the standard routine for getting them in the cage is you would just have a designated cue, get them to pop in, hide a few treats in there, and then let them out right away. And what you want to be doing is encouraging them to go in that cage, know that there's gonna be a prize and something exciting in there for them to find and occupy themselves with, 
And then once they find it, they can come back out. And each time you practice, you increase that duration of time that they're in there for. So they are more confident going in there, finding something and relaxing. Then you can practice going around the corner and being out of sight. Then you can practice actually leaving the front door and coming back in. And you're breaking it down into all of those elements. So they understand how to remain calm and confident in their cage alone under all of those different circumstances. On top mm -hmm. of this, you also need to break down your actual leaving routine. So when we're dealing with anxiety, what usually happens is when you go to leave the house, you have a very specific routine. You put your shoes on, you get your keys, you fill up your backpack, you make your lunch, whatever it is. And the bird knows that you do all of those things yeah. right before you leave and they feel distressed. So before you've even gone, before you've even put them in their cage, all of that anxiety and stress is stacking on top of each other and building and they're already starting to freak out. And if they're in that headspace, it's really hard for them to calm down and relax. So you need to practice that leaving routine outside of the context of you actually needing to leave. So that way, each one of those elements doesn't trigger that part of the brain anymore. And you can put on your shoes and then go sit down on the couch on like a weekend when you don't need to go anywhere. And mm -hmm. they're going to start to recognize that when you put on your keys or put on your shoes, get your keys or whatever, it's not necessarily going to mean that you're going to leave. And that can help them be able to be relaxed when those cues are happening. So when it comes time to cue them into their cage, they're able to relax a lot easier. They're able to forage for the things they want, and then they're good. And this sounds like a lot of work, and it is. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. <laughs> Anxiety cases are challenging, and they last a very long time. But if you do it right, it will also last a very, very long mm -hmm. time. <laughs> yeah, just listening to you talk about all of this, I'm like, this is something that's going to take a lot of patience and consistency. And that's what training with parrots is. So when you get a bird or you're thinking about getting a bird, you need to keep in mind, or if you're rescuing a bird, that it's really going to take work. And it's not just like an easy pet. It's not a fish in a fish bowl. And even still aquariums take a lot of work, but you know, it's going to take a lot of effort on the owner's part to really help your parrot through that so that they're not screaming and feeling anxious every time you leave. I did have a question regarding that. I wanted to ask you, do you find that the attention screaming happens a lot more when it's a solo bird versus a flock? Because if there's a flock, then there's more than one. So I'm wondering, do they feel less lonely or less scared because they still have their flock or something that's familiar? I'm actually not too sure. What, what I think it also depends on when they're kind of brought in together as well because if you had a solo bird for a while and they already picked up an attention screaming habit and then you brought in another one there's a very real chance that that's going to kind of transfer onto the new bird and go okay he's screaming so I should also be screaming and then that problem can exasper exasperate right mm -hmm. versus if you get two birds around the same amount of time and you put the effort in and teach them to both be confident alone I think that's significantly more valuable than necessarily just having a second bird because a second bird isn't always going to help your problems in a lot of cases and yes it can if the bird views that bird as another flock member you know they won't always get along as well yeah but if you are a member of their flock and you wander away it can still be distressing enough for some birds to need to scream regardless of if a buddy is still there so it's not necessarily mutually exclusive to you know duos versus single birds mm -hmm. um 
but I would say the more critical thing to focus on would be pretty much as soon as you get them practice independent activities and that doesn't necessarily mean lock them up for long periods of time it can be you're working on your desk and you set them up with a foraging toy off to the side so they don't have to be on you and attached to you they can be doing an independent activity without you having to be involved and those are the skills that are going to allow them to be able to transfer into being confident when you're not around and you can practice setting them up for a foraging activity and just walking away and walking back and having them not feel the need to fly and chase after you and those are going to be the skills that set them up to be confident when you do have to leave. Yeah. I love that you said that because that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk with you about, which is foraging. And you were talking about how it's an activity that they can do. They can be independent. It's mentally stimulating. It's something that they do naturally. It's natural behavior in birds to forage and look for food and look for seeds and fruits and all of these different things. So I actually saw that... Oh yes. The reels that you were posting about the foraging dog toys. That's what it was. I was like, that is such a fun idea. I love creating all kinds of foraging trays and like hiding stuff in her toys and setting up little burb areas so that she has those places where she can go play and destroy and forage and have fun. But I've never thought about the dog toys because with Lambo, he has his own foraging toys. And one of them is the foraging mat, which you included in the video. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to get all of these dog toys for Mia now, (laughs) because this is such a great idea. So tell me how you came up with the idea to use these dog toys as foraging toys for birds and which ones you recommend, because I'm sure not all dog toys are going to be safe for birds. Yeah. So this started years ago like I think the first time I ever set foot in a pet store looking for bird stuff and realized that the aisle was two squares wide and sucked. <laughs> and it's all for dogs and cats <laughs> it's terrible so at some point I noticed the JW holy roller ball which is like a rubber ball that kind of looks like a wiffle ball and I was like I could fit nutriberries in that that would be great but at the time, it's still the bird community is still kind of this way, but it was really bad back in 2014. If it didn't specifically say it was meant for birds, you were like the devil and should not be using it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I put it off for a number of years. So I was like, no, it's bad to do that. I shouldn't do that. Everyone's saying it's bad to do that. And then I eventually actually looked it up and, you know, you can contact companies and you can figure out what they're made out of. And really a lot of it is actually safe for birds too because it has to be safe for potential ingestion risks with dogs too because they're gonna Mm -hmm. swallow it and obviously not everything that's toxic for birds is toxic for dogs but most of the times it can be and so the rubbers and stuff that they use can be so i ended up getting that jw holy roller in like the smallest size and then you can cut one of the fans i suppose to make a bigger hole and then you can fit the nutriberry inside and then it kind of still closes in on itself and then you can make a nutriberry last like an hour (laughs) because they're trying to get to the nutriberry yeah and it keeps kind of like rolling around and it gets a little harder to reach and it can last a really really long time and then shortly after that i went back to the pet store and lo and behold like a couple months later it was probably a couple years later actually there released a bird toy that had (laughs) that rubber ball it was actually like an oval a yellow oval instead but the exact same concept sitting there and i was like they were inspired by you (laughs) ahead of the time <laughs> um, so naturally I bought that <laughs> immediately <laughs> um, 
but then it kind of stayed stagnant for a while and then when we moved into this house just recently I got a dog and you know you get exposed to the dog aisles more and you can see more things and there's lots of puzzles that I'm like I bet you the birds could move that puzzle or I bet you that it's not too heavy for them I bet you they could use that and it hit a point where it's like okay well I have a dog if it doesn't work out <laughs> I can just yeah. give it to the dog instead it's a win-win it'll be fine and so, you know, you contact the companies, you email them and you double check that the, the stuff is safe and, and you can use them. And the ones I love using the most are the Pet Stages puzzle feeders. And these ones are like hard plastic puzzles that are on the floor. And the ones I use the most have like sliders. So it's usually like a little yeah. cup, upside down cup with a hole in the top. You can put your seeds in there and then the bird just has to push it over to a little indented spot and then all the seeds fall into that indent and they can get it and it works super super great my parrotlet who weighed like 25 grams was able to push that same puzzle that's not too heavy for them so if anybody has really tiny birds it will still work for them um and even so a budgie? I use even a budgie yeah okay. budgies are, are bigger bigger than parrotlets oh. and uh, so yeah it, it works super super well for them and it's not so overly challenging that they're going to have a hard time but the benefit with it is that you can change it up every single time they use it because you can just fill some of the holes and you can fill different holes every time. So it keeps it exciting and new every single time that they they interact with it. And I've been using the, the Buggin' Out puzzle feeder and the Rainy Day puzzle feeder for about three years, I think, maybe four years. And Newt has not gotten bored of it a single time since then. I haven't had to like take it away and then bring it back to make it exciting. He hasn't yeah. gotten bored with it. So they work super, super well. And then I'm buying the, some uh, today. <laughs> I would if it doesn't work out, your dog can have it. It's, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, but then I will say the one thing with those is that they're made of a hard plastic, and it's not as hard as acrylic. So if anybody has like really large birds, it's probably not going to be great for them because they will probably just snap the pieces mm. and break it. So it might not be ideal for larger birds, but anything from like a mini macaw, I would say, and down will probably not have a problem with that. Or if you have a bird that doesn't tend to crunch hard plastic apart and then it would probably be safe for them to use as well um but then the other one that I, I use all the time is the snuffle mat which which you mentioned already where it's just like fleece fiber things and then you can scatter the pellets through and I loved that one the first time I saw it because I was like it's like grass it's exactly like foraging through grass and they can shuffle through it move the little pieces of fabric out of the way and they can get it obviously not going to be ideal for every bird some birds will eat the fabric it's not gonna be good for them um, you need to but supervise, I think, with that one, yeah? Exactly, yeah. My guys have never tried to eat it, so kind of thankful in that regard, but might not be the best thing for everybody. The benefit with this one, though, is that the entire thing can just go in the washing machine. So yeah. Can, I, just, I just shake it off and then throw it in the washing machine, throw it in the dryer, and it's brand new. And I've had that also for about three or four years, and it still looks the same as it did when I first bought it when it comes out the wash. So that one lasts a really, really long time. On the same topic of using dog things for birds, the treats, <laughs> not something you would think of, right? Dog but treats. Dog tre not all dog treats, okay. but, the treats <laughs> but the treats aisle. I know, especially in pet value, which would also be uh, Paul Mac Pets and Bosley's, depending on where you are. I don't know if they have it in the States, but um, they do in Canada, at least. Um, the treats aisle will have just dehydrated sweet potato just dehydrated um apple and there's no sulfur or anything in them and you can use that for birds as well and it 
it works fantastic. Same goes for the small animal aisle, the guinea pigs and the bunnies. There's, I believe it's Oxbow that makes it where it's just freeze dried strawberries. And I think they had freeze dried pineapple as well. Yeah. And again, nothing else weird those. in it. They're so good. I'm, I have eaten them. <laughs> they are very good. <laughs> I have munched on the strawberries. So they're safe for consumption. <laughs> it's, well, I'm sure on the package it says like not for human consumption. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still alive. So it's obviously okay. <laughs> if you're listening, we're not really saying good. to eat your bird's treats or your dog's treats. <laughs> but, but I'm not going to say at don't the same do time, <laughs> whenever like I'm feeding Mia or feeding Lambo, I'm like, I want them to be eating something that I would actually eat, yeah. except for nuts because I'm allergic. <laughs> Mia, you can have all of those. <laughs> strawberries, if you've ever had the like special K strawberry cereal <laughs> yes I used to love that that used to be my daily breakfast that's exactly what it tastes like just the oh strawberries my gosh so yummy it's yummy <laughs> it's very good <laughs> but so it, it works great and it's cheaper than making bird treats a lot of the time because if you're trying mm -hmm. to dehydrate your own fruit or you're buying dehydrated fruit from the grocery store and you're watching out for sulfur and all of that stuff it usually gets pretty expensive but if it's already marketed as a dog treat the prices tend to be lower and they're yeah. set up for you and and they're good to go so more stuff to consider what are your favorite or your bird's favorite things for you to put inside of these foraging toys or like any foraging activities so I primarily only forage for their pellets actually I don't use oh. a lot of seed yeah these guys uh, not these guys, this guy in particular has struggled with maintaining his weight normal. He likes to be a little bit of a chubby bumpkin. Um, newt. So, yes, newt, newt struggles with that. So we've uh, had to kind of watch his weight. And so all of their meals are <laughs> so are put into foragers. Um, they, they basically don't get bowls. There's some bowls out right now because Toto's new and I want to make sure he still has a food source on the off chance that he struggles <laughs> to find the food out of the, out of the It's like, forager. what are you saying? Let me get those words right out of your mouth. You just eat your teeth. Delicious. Um, but so yeah, I put all of their pellets in there and I use a variety of different pellets. I use the Harrison's like hot pepper, tiny ones, the Kitek oven fresh bites, small and the largest size, and then the tops pellets. And then I have the Harrison's hot pepper in like the course. So it's a bunch of different you, textures, a so bunch of different flavors. So you give them a variety of pellets. Yeah. I started doing that a few years ago because someone had suggested to me that like, what happens if a food gets recalled? And I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> Parrots are terrible for not wanting to eat a different food. If that food ever gets I've recalled, never thought of this. they have to go back onto seed. Like you're not going to be able to get them to eat a new pellet in five minutes. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what to, can you stop trying to chew my headphone? Come here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I started feeding a variety. And then on the, the second note with that is that we actually don't really have any science on exactly what parrots need for their nutrition. A lot of the data they take to make kind of the standards for what to put in it, they take from chickens. So science at, at its standard point doesn't actually know what exact nutrients a parrot needs. We have a very vague idea of the foods that they eat, but we don't know exactly how much of each nutrient. So I'm put, I would be putting a lot of trust into exactly one company to get everything exactly right without the science to back it up. So by feeding a huge variety, I'm kind of covering my bases. If one has a little too little of something and one has a little too much of something, they kind of balance each other out. And it just gives me a little bit more peace of mind. Not for everybody, but I enjoy how it gives them flavor variety and it gives them texture variety and a little bit of color variety. Not a ton though, because pellets are all pretty much brown, but 
Yeah, so I get them to, to forage for them all instead because well, the tops will just sit and there the Harrisons and have a different color and different yeah, very, shape. Yeah, that one's green. Kind sure, of sure. texture too. Harrisons very calls different. them nuggets, and tops calls they? them pellets. Yeah, they call it's them nuggets. I was actually speaking with them because we had done, you know, some videos and photos with Mia eating the Harrison's pellets. And I was like, yeah, I always talk about these pellets and that they're great. And both mango and Mia really love them. And they told me that they're called nuggets because they go through a totally different process than the pellets do. Like tops are like cold pressed where the nuggets go through a completely different process. I can't remember off the top (laughs) of my head right now, but I can send it to you after. Sure. That's yeah. a, that's, inter- that's interesting to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so nuggets and pellets. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought that the name yeah. was really cute because I'm like, they're like little tiny nuggets. <laughs> they have like the biggest size variety too because like they're micro nuggets. <laughs> yeah. Are, the like, super the fine. I once ordered those by accident and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, <laughs> I almost can't see there. them. <laughs> I had to, I use those actually as treats. If you get the hot pepper ones and then in the super fine, it's like a perfect training treat size. And Ooh. then you're not putting on a lot of calories and weight. And then it's hot pepper flavored, which my bird tends to love. So it works out really great as a little bit of a, a way to not put on weight with seeds and still get a good behavior out of it. Yeah. (laughs) You've inspired me. I'm going to go buy other pellets because Mia's had tops before, but she really likes the Harrison's and I always buy the adult lifetime fine and it's just those ones. And I'm like, now I'm inspired. What have I been doing this whole time? I should be giving her a buffet of pellets. Get different sizes because the, the Harrison's, the coarse ones, Mm-hmm. a same size bird he can break them no problem but also it helps keep their beak down so if they get a little picky and they don't want to play with a toy the pellet itself takes them longer to eat and chew and they break apart the pieces and then it's its own little bit of enrichment different size different texture and it gives yeah. them a bit of a different format i found the like the super fine are all very uniform and then the course you'll actually get like little bits of the stuff that they grind into them mm-hmm. not fully ground up so you'll get like whole millet seeds or something sitting in there and then it makes it a little bit more fun for them so do the different sizes. Oh my gosh. I love this. I'm actually <laughs> going to see if I have this somewhere about the Harrison's pellets. With ingredients being equal, the primary difference between pellets and Harrison's nuggets is in the manufacturing process. Pellets require steam, pressure, and a binding agent such as clay-like products to bind the grains into a firm pellet. This is an economical process, but pellets are less digestible than formulated diets produced by extrusion and because they have low moisture and fat content, they tend to crumble and may not be appealing to animals. Harrison's bird foods are actually nuggets, which are produced by a low temperature, low pressure extrusion process. In addition to the heat destruction of microorganisms and anti-nutritional factors, the carbohydrates are caramelized, resulting in a caramel flavor and light brown color. I'm going to try these. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think it's going to taste like caramel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's why they're called yeah. nuggets. <laughs> Makes sense, I suppose. I wonder if that's a legal thing or if that's just kind of what they've decided to kind of differentiate themselves. Yeah, from else. I don't know. I've always referred to them as pellets. So this was news to me. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, what are the different types of pellets that you have? I know you mentioned Harrison's and Tops, but I want specifics so I can buy them. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hold on, let me look at the wall. <laughs> we have, uh, it, uh, so Oven Fresh Bites is the other brand. And I get that one in two sizes. It, it's just Oven Fresh Bites. They make like a cookie and then they make the pellet. 
So make sure you're and actually the getting the, the pellet. Ice. Where are yeah, they by, uh, based out of? One second, I can tell you. <laughs> I think California. I want to believe California. So they're in the States. I wonder Says if made they in the USA. internationally. Well, I'm I'm in Canada, so they at least make it over here. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in North America for sure. You can also usually get them off of like uh, my safe bird store and stuff and they ship internationally. So I would think you would be okay. Okay, great. I have the, the extra small, which is bigger than, than the super fine for uh, Harrison's. And then I get, I think it's actually medium and those pellets are huge. They're probably about that big, but they come apart, not like tops. They don't crumble apart. But it's kind of like if you were to make a bit of a dry cookie and so it'll break yeah. apart into pieces. And he goes nuts for it. I actually have to be careful when he eats them because sometimes he just tries to swallow it whole without eating because he gets too excited for it. This is so good! <laughs> yeah, he, he loves them. I don't know what it is, but that, that's one pellet that I didn't have to do any conversion for. I just handed it to them and they were like delicious and they ate it on the first try. Um, and then... Uh, Harrison's I only do the hot pepper ones because for me I just use Harrison's for the fact that it has that flavor variety so there's the high potency in the super fine and then there's like adult lifetime for the hot pepper as well and I get that one in the course for that that texture difference and then we have I think it's just tops after that and then I'll mix it up I usually get like the smallest second smallest size for them but this last time they didn't have it so I got the bigger one and it just made it really exciting for them because it was a different texture or a different size With the than tops? we used to. Yeah. And it's oh. it's technically the exact same thing, but it's just a different pellet size. And they got super excited for it because it was quote unquote new. So, so they got really stoked and they just gobbled it down really fast. That's awesome. I'm so excited. Mia, we're going to order a bunch of different pellets. We're going to have a buffet of pellets. <laughs> I, I love that. Like Thank them. you for sharing that. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk about one more thing since we're talking about pellets and food and you put out some really awesome videos about this recently, resource guarding. And I don't know if everybody is always familiar with resource guarding or knows what it is. So I wanted you to maybe share with us a little bit about what it is and how sometimes there's gentle cues and sometimes there's a lot stronger cues that they're showing us and how it is totally normal for birds to resource garden. It's not a bad thing. They're just trying to tell us something and there's positive ways that we can help them work through it. Yeah. So the thing I like to point out the most when we're talking about resource guarding is resource guarding is just a behavior in which an animal or any creature tries to defend or protect a valuable resource. That could be their cage. That could be their food. It could be just about anything that they are just wanting to protect. And usually they're protecting it just because they don't want it to be taken away. And I like to point out that people do this too. If you're eating at a restaurant and a stranger walks over and tries to stick your hand, their hand in your plate and take something, you're going to pull that fry? plate towards you. Who exactly. You are. <laughs> I want to share with you. You're going to pull the plate in. You're going to punch you even over it. Your hands? You might slap them like you will react aggressively because what the heck? That's my food. I paid for it. It's mine. Why are you yeah, taking it? I'm hungry. So it's, it's a very normal behavior and it's a survival mm -hmm. strategy. If a parrot didn't guard their resources, they would get bullied out. They wouldn't eat their food and they would die because they aren't eating as much as they should. So resource guarding, again, on its own, although it is considered a problem behavior because it becomes a problem for us when we're trying to change it, the food out in their cage or whatever, and we're getting attacked for it. If that's when it becomes a problem. But to the bird, that's their food. They want to protect it. 
they want to keep it safe. Don't take it away. I'm going to starve, right? If you do. And Mm -hmm. so it's normal. It's fine. It's not that big a deal. It's only a big deal because it ends up hurting us. (laughs) We don't want to get hurt. And so when we're addressing resource guarding, there's two main ways to go around it. You can either kind of address it directly or you can create an incompatible behavior for it. And incompatible behavior is usually the easiest one where you just train them to go and stand on a designated perch and then you can put your hand towards the bowl, treat them for staying on the perch, move it a little closer, treat them for staying on the perch. And then you're able to pick it up and change it out while the bird stays somewhere doing something that is incompatible with attacking you for taking the food out. And this also does set them up for some consistency. Consistency in training is very good because it gives you a lot of confidence, gives the bird a lot of confidence, gives them a lot of sense of control, and it lets them kind of predict what's going to happen. If you practice this routine, you go to this perch, I'm going to take your food away and the food's going to immediately come back and you're going to get a prize. It's very predictable for them to follow and they go, okay, it's not a big deal that you're taking my dish. We've practiced this. I know what's going to happen. And then it's easy breezy. For Mm -hmm. some other birds, the best way to go about it is to actually resolve the fact that they're feeling distressed when you're coming towards their resource. And so the one thing you don't want to do is consistently take it away. If you're going to keep sticking your hand in their dish and they're going to keep feeling threatened by you, sticking your hand in there and moving the food around and getting in their space and getting in their resource, you can amplify the way that they're feeling because they're showing you that I am uncomfortable, I don't like this, and you're going, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyways, and it's going to make more extreme reactions in order to get you to stop, right? And so instead, what you want to do is you want to make your presence around the bowl a positive thing. So now you approaching isn't a threat, it's a cue that something good is going to happen. And the easiest way to do that is just to kind of throw treats from whatever distance your bird is comfortable at. Usually you put like a dish on a table or something, let them eat it. And then you can kind of walk by, drop a treat and walk away. You don't need to touch the dish. The treat doesn't even need to make it in the dish. You're just having them understand that your presence around that food bowl is positive. You're just there to add to the experience. You're not there to take it away. And then you'll hit a point where you're able to be around that dish and hang around it and they're not concerned about you. And that's when you can start working on things like asking them to recall away from the dish or to go get something else on a different perch, or you can teach them to freeze and pause and then start handling the dish and work on it that way. And the important part with working with working with resource guarding is not to push them to the point of needing to bite. There will be cues prior to the biting happening that will tell you that they're uncomfortable. And this can look like them standing up really, really tall and scared. This could be them fluffing up and kind of getting low and getting defensive. This could be vocalizations of them kind of getting raspy and almost growling at you. They could be lunging at the bars of the cage and things like that. There's all sorts of cues that an animal can give you to say, Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable with this. And you want to make sure that you're working underneath their threshold, right? If you're constantly getting bit while you're doing this training, then you're going over their threshold and you're saying, hey, (laughs) I'm going to be scary every time I come here. And every time you cover, go over that threshold, you're reassuring them that you will in fact (laughs) push them to that point. So you want to make sure you're staying underneath that when you're working on it, keep them calm, keep them using their body language to tell you off instead. And then that biting isn't necessary. And it's a lot easier for them to associate that you're not going to invade that space and that you aren't a threat around the resource. Another one that I also saw that you were uh, mentioned in the post was to do like a high value trade. Yeah, that's really common in like the dog trading world um, where 
they have something that's really valuable. And when you're asking them to leave it, you need to make sure that you're matching or exceeding that value. Otherwise, there's not going to be any motivation to leave. The more you practice it, then you can start using lower value things. So what happens is the reinforcement history. So the memories and the knowledge they have of leaving that valuable resource before with the amount of training repetitions you've done, that is enough to tell them that, hey, I've gotten some really great stuff before for doing this. And so I will do it, even though I'm not seeing a treat being presented to me. There's a very real possibility I have done this before and it has yielded me good results before. But when you're not at that point yet and you're just trying to kind of manage the situation where you have an aggressive bird and you need to remove that food bowl and they're presenting aggressive behavior, then a high value trade is a great way to work with that because you can get them to kind of follow that really, really high value item to a safe location and enjoy that. So that way you can change out the bowl as that temporary management strategy. It's not necessarily going to resolve the resource guarding, but it is a tool to have in your back burner for if you're kind of stuck and you have to change this bowl and there's no other way to go around it. You can use a really high value treat just to be like, hey, I have something just as valuable. Come over here for a second. Enjoy your entire chunk of walnut. I'm just going to quickly take this. That's her favorite. Walnuts. We'll go back. She'll do <laughs> everything walnut for walnuts. Too. It's the best. And it's nice and clean, not like millet where it just like, <laughs> leaves so many crumbs. Walnut is nice and clean. Or even safflower seeds. Then I've got like <laughs> shells everywhere. Yes, so. Everywhere. What are your birds' favorite treats? What are their like top high value treats? Walnut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Walnut's really the biggest one. Pine nuts is another big one, but I don't yeah. buy them as much because they're so expensive, mm. but they're really, really good. And then sunflower is a good one. I find if we're working with walnut for something, for whatever reason, it's very fatty and it can almost be too rich for him. And he'll kind of hit a point where he's like, eh, I'm a kid that's eaten too much candy and I'm a little bleh. <laughs> <laughs> and then you throw a little sunflower seed in there and it's almost like there's still a fatty seed but it's a little healthier I suppose in comparison and then he's like oh delicious this reset my palate I'm, I'm good to go those are kind of the two main main go-tos and then like our low value is always the Harrison's uh hot pepper super fine palate but before we go I wanted to ask you a couple of fun questions if your parents could choose a career path, what do you think that they would be? I think Newt would work in like demolition. <laughs> His a construction be, worker. Yeah, he'd swing off the wrecking ball and smash buildings to the floor. That would be his his pride and joy. And then I feel like Toto would probably be like a principal or something. Just really loving to <laughs> scream for, for, you know, yell at people that should not be yelled at and just oh absolutely <laughs> boss everyone around. He's got the like hefty hips for it too. So he can get that like principal <laughs> swagger down the street with the key chain jingling. Oh I think he could gosh. do it. <laughs> I love it. Um, if your parents were to become superheroes, what superpower would they have and what would be their superhero name? They'd probably both go and uh, develop the capacity to go back in time so they could go be dinosaurs. Let's be real here. <laughs> Flying pterodactyls. Yeah, they'd go back to be like, I'm supposed to be a dinosaur. And then they'd get back there, realize what dinosaurs looked like and go, oh no. <laughs> I miss my mom now. Get chomped up immediately, regret their life choices. <laughs> who is the most dramatic and who is the loudest? Toto's the loudest. 
by far Toto is the loudest. Um, what was the other question? And who is the most dramatic? Who's the most dramatic? Or the nicest? Or I'm both? gonna say I'm gonna say Newt, okay? Because this one time we took Newt to the vet and he was getting his blood drawn just for a routine thing. And he decided to be very dramatic because it didn't feel good to get poked, right? And so yeah. instead of just being like, oh, it didn't feel good, he decided to like pretend like he couldn't walk. <laughs> and so he got put in an incubator and I had to sit with him in the incubator in the vet clinic for an extra like hour until the vet walked by with Timbits and gave him a piece of her Timbit. And then he was like, I'm fine, I'm cured. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Timbits to the rescue. Can birds Apparently. have pieces of Timbits? Yeah, I mean, it's not a good treat for them, but the, she was like, maybe it'll Maybe like the plain sugar. old fashioned. Yeah, the, just not the plain chocolate. like the inside, not the glaze, but just, just a little bit of the dough from the inside. Yeah. She's like, it'll boost his blood sugar, get him moving. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. It, he got one whiff of that donut oh and was running against the wall. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> and if Toto and Newt were to start a band, what would their band name be? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but... I always my husband's always like if someone was to ask you these questions do you have an answer and I'm like absolutely not <laughs> probably not <laughs> um I feel like so Toto and Newt are like mad in love with each other they cannot get enough of each other Cute. so I feel like they would be a little like boy band and all of their songs would be love songs and <laughs> Toto would have to be the lead singer because he's got the loudest voice. Newt would be like bashing his head on the drum set. <laughs> and like the tones just aren't matching up, but the spirit's there and they're they're all just talking about how much they burp love the sink. other bird. Bur sure. Yeah, we'll go with burp, burp sink. <laughs> burp Street Boys. The Burb Street Boys. I like that one better. It's so cute. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to make a CD cover. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping onto the podcast. Let everybody know how they can find you, your social media handles, and all that good stuff one more time. Right. So I'm on YouTube, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can type Flock Talk on any of those, and it will probably pop up. Um, for uh, YouTube, it is just Flock Talk. And then Tumblr is just Flock Talk with like a dash in the middle. And then Instagram somebody took flock talk so it had to be flock dot talks with an s uh but that's how you would find me <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for tuning in to the pair podcast i'm your host sandra from poodles and parrots and we'll see you in the next episode